You're listening to the Memphis MedCast, a podcast series from Memphis Medical Society. Find out more about our mission and services at mdmemphis.org. Hey listeners, here's another presentation with Dr. Manoj Jain focused on the science of reopening Memphis. Hope you learn a lot from it and hope you enjoy it. I uh, hope it gives you a little bit more in-depth information about what's going on in our city. If you have any other ideas for episodes, contact us anytime at info at mdmemphis.org. Okay, I think we'll go ahead and get started. Uh, this is Clint Cummins, CEO of the Memphis Medical Society. I think this is the fourth call we've done in uh, Memphis, along with some other statewide and um uh, I think uh, along with the rest of you, I've got a little bit of zoomitis at this point, but uh, nevertheless, we um, we carry on, right? So uh, before we turn things over to Dr. Jane, we wanted to uh, start off a little bit differently uh, tonight. Uh, as y'all can imagine, uh, one of the things that's been impacted um, for the medical society through the pandemic has been the inability to host member events. And uh, one of the uh, benefits of us doing that is we have some great sponsors that uh, support those events. So uh, we wanted to give one of our sponsors just a minute or two to open the call last night or tonight. And uh, uh, we picked uh, this one for a really special reason. One is uh, this organization and this individual has been with us as a sponsor for a long time. We're really grateful for them. Uh, and in addition, they helped us tremendously with our own PPP loan um, as we try to stay afloat financially um, through the pandemic. And so uh, I want to turn things over uh, to Margaret Yancey from First Tennessee. Uh, Margaret, thanks for uh, continuing to support us throughout all this. And I uh, want to let you uh, say a couple words tonight. Margaret, are you there? Let me see if I can unmute you. You should be unmuted, Margaret. Can you hear me? Yes, we can. Okay, can you? Okay, perfect. Thank you. Good evening, everyone. And I appreciate the opportunity to um, be on here and, um, and get to say a few words to you guys. I want to say first and foremost, thank you. Um, you guys are all on the front line with your teams and your employees battling this uh, pandemic every day um, and, and we wouldn't be as far along as we are um, in the Mid-South if it weren't for each and every one of you. So first and foremost, thank you. Um, also, thank you for the relationship and partnership that First Horizon has with the Memphis Medical Society. We've had it for a long time. We don't take it for granted. Um, we appreciate the opportunity to work with the Medical Society as well as with each of you and your practices. Um, if I can ever be of assistance to you individually or to your practice, please don't hesitate to uh, reach out to me. Clint has my contact information up on the screen. Um, I will echo Clint's sentiments. After 23 years in the industry, it's probably been the most interesting eight weeks of my career. Um, the, the SBA PPP loan um, put banks um, right in the middle um, of the funding exercise from the government to businesses. Uh, just as a point of reference, First Horizon um, has done 11,000 SBA PPP loans um, since they started it just a few weeks ago for $2.1 billion. Of that, 1,425 have been in the Mid-South um, for a total of $340 million. I'm sure some of you on this call um, were recipients of those money and um, 
hopefully it has helped um, keep the practices going and your employees employed and paid. And if I can ever be of assistance, please don't hesitate to reach out. Thank you. Thank you, Margaret. I uh, appreciate all you do for us. Thanks for being with us for a couple of minutes tonight. And uh, hopefully one day down the road, we'll see you at a live event soon. It would be nice to see people again, yeah. <laughs> uh, thanks again, Margaret. Uh, want to turn things over to Dr. Jane. Thank also you. want to remind everyone that uh, if you have a question, feel free to type it in uh, to the chat box. And uh, Dr. Jane, I will uh, turn it over to you. Okay, great. Oh, well, thank you, uh, Clint, and thank you, Margaret. And uh, and uh, if you would just allow me to share my screen. Um, so uh, I think, Clint, you may need to just... Um, so, uh, Margaret, you asked about getting together, right? Uh, and actually, that's what we'll sort of talk about is how do we do this? Um, and what is the science behind uh, reopening? Um, as you know, our, our uh, hang on one second, I'm just gonna go to uh, my screen. Okay. And can you see my screen? Yes, sir. I put in a couple extra precautions okay. for this meeting, so sorry for the little hesitation. <laughs> there. Okay, got it. So uh, uh, I think uh, the, the question that we all have been asking is, uh, when will we open? How will we open? And uh, what are the risks and benefits that one has to go through? Uh, these past two months have been unlike any in my life. Uh, and I'm sure same is for, for you and also at the government and the local government level. Um, I have been nearly every day in, connect, in contact with uh, the mayors, uh, city council folks. Uh, Jeff Warren is also with us and uh, he and I uh, spend a good amount of time together uh, conversing on what is happening and what we can do. So here is what I wanna do this evening, spend about 20, 25 minutes, and then, then we can go into a lot of detail and discussions as well and uh, where uh, your questions may be. So we wanna talk about the first lockdown, why we had to do it and what it, we have achieved. Then let's talk about the priorities that we're juggling when we reopen. Look at some national guidelines, the metrics that we need to follow, what the back to business plan for Memphis. So I'm gonna very uh, uh, much focus on the local strategy. And then ultimately, I think the big question is, what is the end game with COVID-19? I think we need to have a clear vision of how this thing is going to end because it will help actually cope with what we're going through right now. When we have a clear vision of how this thing is going to end, then we can sort of uh, take the time to go through. And in many ways, this is for you to know, to be able to convey to your patients, to other doctors and colleagues. So it's, that's really important. So I'm gonna repeat this slide at the end, but I, I wanna just first begin with uh, the, the idea of containing COVID-19. Uh, 
the first set of steps that we did was social distancing for the first couple of months, including the hand washing and the masks. And that was for allowing us the time to be able to prepare for what is to come. What is to come is testing, isolation, contact tracing, and surveillance, and then hopefully at the end, an antiviral treatment or a vaccine. We'll come back to this in a bit. But let's talk about the single most important thing that we have done in the lockdown and its containment of the, in, our interactions so that we do not allow the virus to spread. And social distancing just basically means the number of interactions that we have, if zero to if uh, four people live together, three interactions. But as you go down the line, our interactions in events get up to 40, 50 or more. And that's when the virus can spread to a large number of people. Now, this slide is gonna become incredibly important when we talk about reopening because the risk benefits will be determined uh, by this. Okay, so what did we achieve by our social distancing? Our curve looked basically, we, we were on this uh, pandemic uh, outbreak uh, with no interventions initially. We put in so, social distancing and the lockdown is basically that, and we have flattened the curve significantly. We have not, if you remember when we talked about this a couple of, uh, uh, some weeks ago, uh, we were very concerned that we would be like New York, but we have effectively curtailed that and we are in a much better position. So what, and what are the risks, benefits as we begin to think about reopening? And what is it that we lose and what is it that we gain? And the way I want to sort of put this is to talk about our health risks, the economic gains, and what are the spiritual and social gains. So put it into context, the first greatest concern of health risk are when people get together. If you remember that slide on social distancing, large gatherings, Memphis in May, concerts, conferences, because there are so many interactions, very high risk. There is an economic gain and there is a social gain on that too. At the next level are religious institutions, places of worship, schools. They're relatively high interaction, high risk, moderate economic gain or none, but there is a tremendous spiritual and social gain. Then obviously our shopping malls and restaurants, some risk, but a huge economic gain. As you can imagine, uh, this is where we're tremendously hurting. Uh, I believe 65% uh, of the unemployment uh, that has occurred has happened in this sector. And certainly at workplaces, less risk for some economic gain. And then opening up healthcare offices and healthcare facilities, there is a tremendous, there's not a health risk, but a health gain in all of them. And so this is the model upon which we have been thinking about in opening up the, the uh, economy 
at the local level and the same model that's happening at the national level. In fact, the guidance that has come a lot uh, from the national level has been this uh, institute from uh, John Hopkins. They have a very uh, nice document in which they provide details of wh where are the high risk areas or not. And this may show up or not show up completely, but so for example, restaurants have a medium risk, bars are somewhat of a high risk, uh, and salons are medium risk. So what we can do is look at various uh, uh, settings, employment settings and others, which have high or low risks. Uh, another place that we can look at the contact intensity and the, the number of contacts, places of worship, high risk, number of contacts are high risk, and then the modifications that can we make them to reduce risk. So I show this is because it's at the national level, uh, there are guidance documents that help us decide. Well, based on that guidance uh, and based on local expertise, there have been a, a set of plans that have been developed. In fact, there are three major plans. There is the state plan, which is the Tennessee Pledge, uh, reopening Tennessee responsibly. Uh, there is a four uh, city metro plan, and I was part of that uh, committee, uh, which had individuals from each of the four metro uh, cities, which is, uh, and they've uh, got together to make the plan. And then the back to uh, business, this is the Memphis plan, which I will share some of the details. So uh, all of these plans have many things in common, uh, not exactly the same, some local flavor to it. Uh, at the uh, uh, federal level, there is a plan, but that is quite vague in, in, uh, in detail. So lots of the plan, and we've had a chance to have input. So my role has been predominantly working at the uh, city level and at the state level in providing guidance as to uh, what are the... Uh, best public health and medical parameters, along with Dr. John McCullough, along with uh, Alyssa Haushalter and Dr. Jeff Warren. So uh, in looking at the science behind reopening, there are several things that we have to be thinking about. One is the infectivity. And we've uh, seen this uh, slide before. As we know, one person can spread measles to 16 other people. Uh, and in terms of the seasonal flu, one person infects maybe another person. What we're finding is with COVID, the number was used to be between two and three, but in settings that can be such as obviously the home setting, but a setting that can be in uh, a, a gathering, a church gathering or a festival gathering, one can spread it to many, many more people. And what we're realizing uh, with COVID-19 uh, is there is a major asymptomatic transmission, 25%, 50%, uh, and that is what's really driving the epidemic at, uh, uh, at an incredible proportion. The mortality rate, uh, again, is the other part that really is driving the epidemic uh, in our response to it. Uh, especially in the elderly. And so we, we're watching that very carefully uh, as well. 
So now into the depths of the science, and I know that this may get a little bit more detailed in the epidemiology um, and the graphic uh, graphs may get more uh, uh, confusing at times, but just bear with it and try to seize the broad perspective. So the metrics and the graphs to follow in reopening are the following. The first is to talk about the single most important measure that we look at, daily new COVID cases. And so that's really important uh, because we look at the daily number of cases. Also the daily hospital COVID census. We need to look at the number of patients who are in the hospital. We can also look at a positivity rate. I won't show slides on that, but let me just take a moment and talk about what I mean about uh, positivity rate in and select populations. When we see patients with a flu-like illness, what we're finding is that we have a 10% positivity rate. When we look at patients in the general population, and now there's been studies done, I'm talking all local in the Memphis area, what we find is there may be a positivity rate of about 0.5%. Why do I say that? Is because several studies uh, being done amongst uh, uh, some healthcare workers uh, and some other populations. And what we're finding is that between 0.5 to 1% is the positivity rate among general healthcare workers uh, as well as the general population is on the lower end. Healthcare workers is about 1%. These are asymptomatic testing. Uh, when we do a outbreak testing, uh, such as you saw the data from the jails, you can have positivity rate in about 25 to 50% or more. So COVID positivity rate is other thing that we look at. We'll also talk about the transmission number, the row knot, and the contact testing and tracing. All right, so let me, let me take a minute and just go over uh, the timeline because this is very important in looking at the graphics. If someone is exposed about five days later is when their symptoms will develop, they get tested maybe eight days later, and then subsequently uh, their uh, test is uh, obtained about eight to 10 days later. So about nine days is when the testing happens, uh, test results are obtained. So all of our reports are about a, this is a nine day delay. And that's important mm -hmm. to remember. Now, uh, let's look at that nine day delay and how that impacts us. Okay. So first, I, I said that the single most important measure is our new cases that are reported. And this is data from Shelby County. Uh, we live in Metro Memphis, I recognize that. Uh, Shelby County has the largest number of cases that we can sort of do a drill down on, so we share that. 25% uh, of all of the Metro Memphis cases come from outside Shelby County. So we've got looking at about 75% of the local cases. Now, what this shows, the blue line, are the daily new cases, uh, all the way from starting in March uh, to, most, to, to recent nowhere. Uh, and what this shows is obviously not a perfect set of lines that we would love to see, but we were on a upward 
trajectory and based on the, the uh, doubling rate and based on other experience, if we had not put shelter in place, this is the trajectory we would have gone in daily number of cases. So we did something completely um, uh, unique that in terms, obviously not compared to other cities and, and say, but in a, in, a, in a history of Memphis, we said there will be a, a lockdown and that was down, out at March 24th. Um, and, and that led to a change in the trajectory and basically that lags about 14 days uh, for the hospitalizations, but about seven, nine, about nine days for cases. And so what we saw was a, a flattening of the curve. Otherwise, remember, if you recall, we were going for this upward trajectory curve. So this is the number I look at every day. My uh, blood pressure and all is determined by the number of cases, new cases that are coming in. And if it's between 60 to 80, then it's within that range of what we are expecting. If it goes up very high, as it did over the weekend, it is a cause for concern. And it's cause for concern to do a root cause analysis of why it happened. And that's exactly what, uh, uh, we don't have that data put in quite yet here, but that's exactly what happened. The numbers were exceedingly high compared to our expectations. And then what we found was it was due to a outbreak at one of the jails. There was testing done, 55% of, I believe, over um, uh, nearly 300 uh, individuals who were tested had a, a, a positive COVID test. And that's why we were seeing such numbers. So seeing the daily newly uh, confirmed cases is, uh, is what, what I look at. Second, I, I wanna share with you, because we're gonna talk about hospitalization. From the day one is exposed to the day they're hospitalized is about 12 to 14 days is the time range. So there is a lag of about 14 days of hospitalization. So that we look at hospitalization curve. All right, very busy curve, but I'll, I'll just help walk through it. And uh, I wanna thank my colleagues, uh, uh, Fritjof Thomas uh, from the, uh, from, from UT for preparing a lot of these slides and uh, Dr. David Sweat from the health department who are part of all of the work that we're doing. Um, so in this slide, uh, if we first just look at the total uh, uh, numbers, uh, these are hospitalizations. The dark blue are those that are COVID positive. The light blue are what they're anticipated people under investigation a test has been sent and of the uh, ones that have been sent, we assume we estimated about 20% will become positive and the number is changing to maybe 10% and now that we're sending out are turning positive. So if we just look at the trajectory of how the cases were going up in the early part of April and then after we did social distancing, we'd have it a lockdown. After, this is what happened 15 days after. Our line flattened. 
And this is what I look at. I, I sort of look at, wait a second, this is how things were going up. And I, I haven't uh, put all of the graphic in, but you can just visualize how the numbers were very small and how quickly they were. And this, this was a trajectory that was happening. And social distancing, you take the day we started, March 23rd, uh, 15 days so later, you see the flattening of the curve. And basically that's what we are seeing now in the hospitalizations. And this is a very good measure. Hospitalizations are a very good measure of what's going on in the spread of the virus in the community. And so first, looking at number of cases. Second is the hospitalizations. The third is a very uh, complicated measure, but it's really important to understand, and especially for those of us in the medical field. I think it's really incumbent to understand this concept of a row knot. The row knot very simply is the transmission number. That means that one person infects how many other people. So uh, as you've ta we talked about, measles infects 16 other people. When we started with COVID-19 and looking at the spread in the local area, this is a group at Vanderbilt. John Graves and his group has done phenomenal work and they put out uh, many, of this, uh, many of these charts. We were at about four to five uh, uh, as a transmission number. One person was uh, infecting it to five people. How do we know this? Based on the doubling time based on the way the virus was behaving the num and the amount of crowding that was done for that. What happened when we did uh, the shelter in place is that we saw, and this is sort of a Tennessee data, we saw a clear plummeting of that row knot. And then you can see how it's evolved. And then which trajectory it will take, we do not know, but we can say that we had effectively, effectively made a difference in the transmission of this virus. Now let's look at local data. Uh, this is from Jesse Smith, uh, uh, also from UT. And, and what he did was look at our Memphis Shelby County data and said, what is our row knot? And how is it changing with time? And when school closures happened, so he has effectively moved the, and shifted uh, that, uh, this back to calculating what is the row knot after, just when we uh, had the school closure. And that brought it down from maybe five plus down to three or four. And then safer at home brought it down further from two down to one where it's been a little bit above and under one. So the bottom line is to end an epidemic, you've got to get into a row knot less than one. Hook or crook, any way you want to do it, one person has to uh, infect less than one person. And that will help end our epidemic. We are just about at one. Uh, or a little bit above. And that little bit above one is, can be very problematic uh, because uh, another detailed graphic from, from Vanderbilt, but it's very telling. If we are at a row knot of one 
And now we begin this conversation of opening up. Correct. And this gives you three different bars, and we'll we'll just look at the transmission rate of one and uh, and three different bars. And when you open in May first, <clears throat> May fifteenth or June first, and then it gives a trigger of a thousand hospital beds being occupied statewide, meaning that things have gotten out of hand. Um, though we could manage a thousand beds uh, overall, um, but, but just as a trigger to say safer at home needs to be put in place again. Uh, what this shows is when you have a transmission number of one, essentially you can go on for many days that this scenario is that you're good, that there is no need to put a lockdown again. However, if the transmission number rises to 1.5 and we do a lockdown and the, end the lockdown on May 1st, then what the analysis is showing that within a month and a half, your state numbers in the hospital, uh, hospitalizations are gonna exceed to a point where you're going to end up having to do a lockdown again within a month and a half. So worst case scenario, if May 1st, you open up and that transmission number is greater than one at 1.5, you'll end up having to do a lockdown. So I, I and then the, all the parameters are in between. I, I, I'm going into a lot of this depth and I apologize uh, for, for such technical uh, mumbo jumbo at times, but what this does is concretely allows uh, us to see the impact of both the RONOT and the public health policy that we make. Um, I wanna now take us to the next step, which is uh, how do we take the science and bring it into the day-to-day decision-making of when and how to open. And so our group uh, at, at, the, at the local uh, government, uh, which is uh, uh, working the city and the county, there is a task force. Uh, Doug McGowan leads the task force. He's a chief operating officer. Uh, the two chairs are the two mayors, uh, Mayor Strickland and Mayor Harris. Uh, and then also uh, in terms of the uh, task force, there is a healthcare task force which I and Dr. Alyssa Householder uh, chair as well. And within that framework, we have a back to business group, which looks at when and how we will open up. So I wanna take a few minutes and talk about how uh, that opening up will take and then we'll finish off. What we said was that we were gonna follow the data and look at four key areas that will determine uh, when we open up and how long we will stay in that particular uh, phase. So first, the idea is that we want to do in three different phases. We didn't want to open all at once, but rather take three phases for opening. And we would follow the following set of metrics. The first and foremost, which you've seen and talked, we've talked about, is the daily number of confirmed new cases. 
and we will look at our status. What is the daily number of uh, cases that we are seeing? Excuse me. Um, and, and that's what that we would see. The second we would look at is our, what is our public health capacity? And what I mean by that is our ability to do contact tracing. And we'll talk a little bit about that, but that whole idea of when a case comes in, can we find their contacts? The third is our healthcare capacity. Uh, can our hospitals manage the uh, patients coming in, both the hospitalizations and the ICU beds? And then our testing capacity, can we test? You put all of these four metrics together, and if we are doing well, then we go from one phase to the other. So again, back to business based on a set of metrics, and those set of metrics then allows us to move to the next stage. Now, what are the different phases look like? I know that the, uh, you may have seen, or you, you, you'll probably see a detailed document, and I would encourage you to go to the website and look at the, uh, at the detailed document of, of when things uh, can reopen. But I wanna give you a broad structure. Phases one, phase two, and phase three. And then if you recall when we had talked earlier, the risks in each phase, the top ones were of greatest risk, the bottom were of least risk. Gatherings, festivals, concerts. We don't wanna be opening them early on. In fact, saying that gatherings at phase one, keep it to less than 10 people, phase two, less than 50 people, and maybe more than 50 allowed in phase three. How does one go from phase one, phase two, phase three? If we're successful in phase one and we don't see a uh, exponential growth in our cases and all of the other metrics are met, we go to phase two. But this, as we've talked about, there's a lag in all of this. 14 day period in each phase is what's required before we go to the next phase to know that we're successfully uh, uh, in that phase and not had an increase in the num uh, numbers of cases. So the first and foremost worrisome will be large gatherings and then we limit those. Religious institutions and libraries in phase one, we talk about 25% of capacity being able to open. And we do that because we don't want social uh, gatherings or many much social interaction and try to limit it by capacity. We really want to open up restaurants and malls and shops, but what we said is generally do it at about 50% capacity so that there is no crowding. And workplaces can open up, but there should be, again, masking and symptom checking. And obviously elective surgeries uh, and uh, food, healthcare are, are open, will open up as well. As we talk about this, we will, if we're successful, then we gradually go to 25, 50, 75, and so forth. So again, looking, we looked at the broad structure of risks, what are the areas that are at high risk, and then said that we would open up those areas one step by step um, and at limited capacity. So this is a broad structure of the reopening. Now, 
At the same time, I want to make sure that we understand when will we have to do a re-lockdown if things are not going right. And that's when, if there's an exponential increase in the number of cases, like you saw the trajectory that was going up, or hospital capacity becoming overwhelmed, insufficient testing, which we, uh, at present, we have sufficient capacity. Uh, in fact, we're needing more patients to come in, especially if those who are having symptoms to be tested and unable to do sufficient contact tracing. And the health department is working on the contact tracing as well as, well as some institutions. Uh, I will put a plug in as I finish on uh, something that, uh, that I've worked on with the University of Memphis, uh, an app for, called mContain. It helps you look at the crowding um, and your encounters and it's there for Androids and it's um, within a week or so will be available for, for the uh, iPhones. And then finish up with the following. What is going to be the end game? How are we going to win against COVID-19? The first part has been the social distancing. The, I'll go back to the original slide. The first part, the social distancing, we have been successful. We have bought time. Um, and it has taken us several months. After that, the end game means we have to test, we have to uh, isolate, do contact tracing and surveillance, all put together. And then we have to continue doing that until there is an antiviral treatment or vaccine. Unfortunately, these cannot be substituted until we have a vaccine or an antiviral treatment. Um, and so you will be seeing a lot more contact tracing, surveillance, isolation, and testing, uh, in addition to the basic hand washing and the masking that we have never, ever seen before to that level. Um, so with that, I'll pause um, and, and take questions and comments and, and um, see what, what, uh, what people uh, uh, would like to know more about. All right. Uh, thank you, Dr. Jane. Uh, if you have questions, type them into the chat box. Uh, we've got a few that have come in um, already. Sure. Um, one of the and I'll ask Dr. Warren. He may be, yeah. He, Dr. Warren may be on the phone on the call with us, and um, and he was a part and parcel to this entire conversation. And if he has a, a few comments to add as well, Dr. Jeff, Warren, are you there? Yes, I'm here. Am I muted? Yes, nope. sir. Yep, you're good. Okay, uh, Manoj, that's a great presentation. Um, I think the key take home point is we've got a new normal and our new normal is we are going to be um, being very careful for a long period of time until we get uh, a vaccine or an antiviral therapy. This virus has the potential to go exponential uh, quickly. So uh, um, we're going to, on the city council, I think, pass a law that requires facial coverings if you're out of your house, exercising or doing something in the wide open. With the idea that in order for us to actually get our businesses open, we need every possible advantage we have on the virus. Right now, uh, if we're opening, it's, it's going to be hard to do that six-foot social distancing 
religiously and we'll follow the the numbers very carefully and if they start to go up then we're in trouble so please if you hear people talking about us trying to get masks on everyone realize that that's the next step to try to go not that transmission rate less than one that's the best thing we can possibly do to get our businesses and our communities and our offices and practices working again. So that's my comments is we really have to strive toward that row knot less than one or transmission rate less than one. And right now driving around uh, today, I rode my bike downtown. People are still out in groups without masks. Even though the council recommended everyone have them this, we may have a law coming up. And I'm open for questions from anybody too. I'll hang on. Thank you. So um, I'm gonna go a little bit out of order with our questions then based on what Dr. Warren said, because we had some questions um, about asymptomatics. Let me uh, scroll to them here. Um, Bear with me here, I'm having some screen difficulty. Um, how do you know that asymptomatic patients uh, can actually pass the virus to others? And if they can, are they less infectious than symptomatic patients? So we know that asymptomatic folks are passing the virus because a lot of the studies that have been done, and actually the first set of studies were from Germany, in the early part of the epidemic, uh, what we saw was a uh, one individual who was in a meeting and then others got infected. And when they did uh, viral sequencing, there was clear connection between the, that the, those two individuals who uh, had become infected. So we know that one person got it from the other and that index patient was not symptomatic. So the answer to that question is without doubt, uh, we know that there is asymptomatic transmission. How much uh, and how uh, often it's occurring, we don't know the details, but generally we are most infectious uh, also with the flu and chickenpox, others, two days prior to showing symptoms. With COVID, the problem is, uh, we're not sure whether one will ever show symptoms. So people can be pre-symptomatic uh, and then again, they, they are shedding the virus or there can be asymptomatic. And the symptoms of COVID are, as you have all uh, uh, probably are aware of and have, uh, have seen, uh, it's so variable and they can be minimal. Minimal, I mean, uh, we're seeing patients who just had a mild fever uh, that's not even measurable, but subjective fevers or some body aches. And so, uh, and those uh, folks are infectious from what we know from clinical, from, from studies and from sequencing studies. So a, a follow-up question to that that came in, then how can you calculate the true RO if you don't know how many asymptomatic cases there are? So uh, the, the RONOT, is looking at uh, a multiple factors to calculate. The single most important factor it's looking at is how, what are the number of cases that are coming in and being detected in a 
community. So let's take a community of of uh, Greater Memphis and and say let's it's one point five four million, but let's assume it's about a million. And so in that million, what we do know is that there is a transmission occurring, and there's a large population that may have symptoms or may be asymptomatic that is not getting tested. Of those that are getting tested, those are flu-like illness. What we find is that's a steady number. And of those who have flu-like illness, 10% are positive. And, and if that number holds steady, that means that one person is infecting another person given the dynamics of the virus. If that number goes up and that doubling, depending on the doubling rate, that means that the row knot is, is going up based on that. So we, we're looking at the existing data from which we're then back calculating the row knot. If we see a decline in the numbers of cases, uh, we know that the row knot has effectively been uh, reduced less than one. So know, we, we keep addressing, you know, this virus, you know, in a similar fashion that we do to the flu. So do we expect this virus to mutate over time? And are we prepared to handle the upcoming flu season um, almost as like a co-infection period with, with COVID? And uh, the follow-up to that is, is the uh, remdesivir going to be as available as Tamiflu? So, so let's talk about... Um, uh, the virus mutating. From the evidence that we have at present, we are not seeing a great amount of mutations occurring. Oh, the other question that is alongside, similar to what you're asking is, uh, how long will immunity last? And we didn't talk about this uh, in terms of testing either, is how long will immunity last if you get infected today? We know with SARS, um, COVID-1, uh, and uh, that lasts for maybe nine months or so. We don't know how long it will last with, uh, if you have an infection at present with uh, SARS-CoV-2. And so that's something that we, time will tell. Um, and then I think uh, you asked in terms of uh, uh, the antiviral treatment and how available it will be. Um, we, we, uh, we believe that it's going to be readily available. It's not a complete game changer in all this. In the studies, it decreased mortality from 11% to 8%. 8% mortality is not something that we would really uh, find acceptable uh, when you compare it to the flu. Uh, this is within, I believe, hospitalized patients and many of which went to the ICU. Yes, it did decrease the uh, uh, time of illness as well. And so I don't believe that this is a sufficient remedy to uh, the problem of, of managing uh, COVID-19. Uh, yes, it's, a, it's in the movement in the right direction. And as Dr. Fauci said, it's a proof in concept that like what happened with AZT uh, when HIV came along, that we can find antivirals to combat this. And there are multiple antivirals on the pipeline and multiple vaccines in the pipeline too.
So a um, couple of questions related to, I guess, public and clinical um, health. If, if the uh, physician's practice is in a, a medical office building, uh, what's the guidelines for um, taking temperatures there? I mean, should they be doing it um, at entrance to the building or inside the waiting room of each clinic? Um, can you give some guidance on that? Sure. So let's just talk about the medical office uh, building and let's even, uh, uh, or you know, a medical office, what and how we may be and wanting to do things differently. In the guidelines, we don't talk about the details, but I'll give you my sort of personal thoughts and opinions on how we may be wanting to do things differently and how certain hospitals are also thinking uh, on similar lines. We're gonna really have to rethink the waiting room. I'm just sort of throwing this at you to, to have you think about this concept. Waiting rooms are places where people who are infected can infect one another. When we do not know the underlying immune status uh, as well as COVID status of individuals, it is not an, a good idea to have them wait in waiting rooms. They can wait in their cars, a text message can come, and then they can come in and be ushered right into their uh, exam room. Uh, so all of the temperature and vital signs and all of those things are taken. Uh, uh, so that's a, a different way of thinking of what a medical office is going to be. We're going to be, have to think differently of patients and individuals. I've talked about this. Uh, we have to think about them as in, in three different categories. You have patients who are going to be uh, uh, what we would say COVID positive. So current test PCR, it looks at current infection. So if they're positive, they're COVID positive. And then the antibody test can help determine if they are COVID susceptible or COVID immune. If the antibody test is positive, they are COVID immune, at least for a period of time. If it's negative, then they're COVID susceptible. And so people will determine their risk status and their transmission risk based on some of this testing. And now think about testing. I know that people are saying, oh my God, how are we gonna do this massive amount of testing? In fact, uh, just today we were uh, talking at various levels uh, of government on how we could uh, take this testing and expand it. So for example, at nursing homes, what we can be doing is maybe once a week, having a self-administered nasal swab, not a nasopharyngeal, and we know that nasal swabs by some of the studies done at St. Jude are as good as a deep nasopharyngeal swab, self-administered nasal swab, and goes in the viral media, goes to the lab, and the lab can then pool 10 together so that the cost is reduced. And then once a week, we determine if the workers that are going into a nursing home have COVID or not. This may happen the same thing for health providers. They would be asked to do a COVID uh, test. All of this depends on the epidemiology of the disease within a community. Our prevalence rate between 0 0.5, uh, 0 0.7 is what we think it is at, at, at present. Uh, how, 
compared to New York, 15% is uh, what they, they may have saying. Uh, so I, I, I just put that out. Uh, let me just take a, a minute and, and talk about, I, I don't mean exactly on the prevalence rate. Let me uh, define that a little bit. So uh, we can look at the rate at which if we tested everyone today, what would be the positivity? And that would be about 0.5%. But if we did an antibody test on everyone in Memphis, we may be between three to 5% compared to New York, which is 20%. A long answer, but uh, I hope I was able to uh, tease out some of the details. Um, so, what about uh, test availability in terms of expansion? Are there, you know, sources for tests that we don't know about? Um, you know, we, even the medical society has been asked about, you know, how do we resource private clinics uh, in the spirit of uh, expanding testing? But it seems that we still have so, testing. So. so, so we have two, three major labs in Memphis area. We have AEL, uh, which is doing both the PCR test, which is a nasal swab one, and the antibody test. So it's doing both of them, and they have capacity to take extra tests. We have Poplar Healthcare, um, and they are doing the PCR test, and they also have capacity. And then we have UT, uh, which is also doing a lot for the, uh, the community clinics. And then LabCorp is there, uh, Compass is there, uh, Quest is there. So our ability to do tests, our capacity uh, is there. We need to find the right select patients, first those who are symptomatic and then targeted asymptomatic to be able to do the test. So on the testing capacity, um, I'm confident that we are there. We need to now find the right set of populations and then have the ability of the staff. So that's another challenge. Uh, and then uh, be able to do the test. We have the kits. Sometimes we, we run short, but, but that is generally uh, something that we can overcome. So uh, a quick follow-up. You mentioned earlier that uh, the health department was working on contact tracing. Is that going well? Do we have appropriate staffing for that? Someone asked about that. So, so, so that's a great question. And the, um, the city has uh, uh, loaned or had, has uh, 20, 30 folks who are working with the county uh, health department. And that's one of the challenges in this uh, new phase because we're getting exceedingly high number of cases uh, and we need to be able to contact trace. Uh, the good thing is before we did the lockdown, uh, one person had maybe seven, 10 contacts. Now, maybe just two or three contacts. Why? Because of the lockdown. Uh, so clearly that's benefited us a, a big way. But when we reopen, that's gonna become a challenge. And this is something that you know we're now focusing now that on the contact tracing and the testing part, uh, while we've been able to successfully do the social distancing and bring the uh, the the row not down, and and the number of uh, infected cases coming in uh, to a lower number. Um, can you address uh, mitigation strategies regarding domestic migration and the fact that the recommended screening questions don't address this? Um, so 
migration, I, I guess, I, I, I think this is what the question is alluding to is, uh, for example, someone coming in from another city or people coming in from uh, another country. Or, or So the dynamics of the disease have changed in the transmission. Uh, before, as you remember, we used to ask this question, have you traveled to China? Have you, you know, been in uh, somewhere far? Then we started asking the questions, were you in New Orleans? In fact, that was, I remember for a week and a half, I was asking my patients, uh, were you at the Mardi Gras? And those were our first set of uh, questions. Uh, uh, first set of patients came from there. Uh, then we asked, were you coming from Washington State or New York? Uh, the dynamics of that has changed. And the reason is, is because there is so much local transmission that's happening. And so that is what's critical to remember that is local transmission uh, is what is driving the epidemic at present, not people coming from the outside. However, that is going to change with time. If we're able to contain the virus within our community, then the concern is people who are coming from outside. And that's where uh, what really matters is gonna be if the rural communities are having an epidemic, the patients from there will be coming here, both for healthcare as well as uh, uh, for other reasons. And that could then reignite the epidemic locally. And that's a problem that we do not have an e uh, easy solution to. So uh, I think a couple people have asked for some clarification around uh, appropriate asymptomatic patients. There's a question of whether uh, targeted asymptomatic, sure. I think you used the terminology, yeah. appropriate asymptomatic. Yeah. Uh, sure. I, I, yeah, I'll take some time and explain that. So we're, we're calling it targeted asymptomatic. So the, doing the nasal swab, uh, the PCR test for the entire population is not practical at the moment. So what we wanna do is first and foremost, test those individuals who are uh, uh, symptomatic. And in that population, we will find 10%. We wanna test those individuals where there is an outbreak, nursing home outbreak, jail outbreak, we need to test a large percentage of the population during that outbreak. Now keep in mind that the PCR test is also not perfect. There is a percentage of false negatives that where we miss uh, cases. What percentage? I don't know. I've talked with Dean Strom uh, over at the medical school and maybe as much as 20% there might be a false negative. And in our clinical practice, we do the same thing. Even if the test is negative, but someone clinically is presenting at like a COVID syndrome with a shortness of breath, a chest X-ray with ground glass appearance, we treat them like a COVID patient. Are they infectious with a negative test? We do not know. Something, an answer to that we, 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 don't, we don't have. Uh, so this asymptomatic question, who we want to test is first the symptomatics outbreaks and then the targeted asymptomatic group are those who are at high risk and those are healthcare workers and so emergency room workers the nurses uh, nursing home workers emts and then we can go to the next stage maybe cashiers 
maybe those who are working at customer service. And so slowly and slowly, we need to work on the targeted asymptomatic. The question comes up, how often do we test them? And the answer is, we don't know. Do we test them every day? Now, that's not practical. Uh, though the virus could present uh, on day three, whereas when you were tested on day one, it was negative. Uh, do we test them every week? Uh, so there are a number of studies that have been done uh, and, and uh, among uh, healthcare workers, especially ones from St. Saint, Saint Jude. A, they, did, they did a great study uh, over uh, 2,000 plus employees uh, who they've done repeated testing on, uh, uh, I believe once uh, 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 every week or, or more often. And of, of those, they did find over a period of time about 0.4% uh, turned positive. Uh, so these are asymptomatic uh, individuals. So the idea is that we want to go from the symptomatics and then triage to the targeted asymptomatic individuals, those who are at risk and of, of spreading it to others. Now the question is, is it valuable to test someone who has underlying uh, health problems? Uh, my answer to that is, I don't believe that that's going to be that valuable because they're not spreading to others. If they become symptomatic, then definitely they need to be tested. But at present, we don't have a prophylaxis or a treatment. Um, so finding out and then our management doesn't change because we're going to observe them in the same over a period of time. A uh, couple of questions about the antibody tests and it's uh, what are our expectations? As um, an example where a patient had a negative antibody test, but then ended up being positive. Um, I may not be asking that question correctly, but. Um, so um, I, I, I don't know the details of, of that, um, but I can explain to you about the antibody test the following way. Uh, it looks at the pre present test, which is at AEL, looks at IgG antibody. Your IgG antibody comes up uh, in the 95 to 99% positive 14 days after the onset of symptoms. So you've got a 14 day period where it's going gradual climb. During those 14 days, uh, there's a chance that it can be, it can be negative, however, uh, there are different grades and cutoffs. So, so that's, that's one issue. The other issue with the antibody test is it uh, may cross-react with other uh, coronaviruses. We don't know the details of that. AEL has put out a, a, a reminder uh, or, or an alert on that. The, the third is there can be false positives. So given the prevalence uh, positive predicted value, uh, and when you look at that, if you do one test, uh, you may get a, given our, our prevalence of maybe 5%, you may get a positive predicted value of maybe 50, 60%. But if you do two, if you get the first positive, you repeat it, then you have a positive predictive value, maybe 95%. So one of the strategies as we begin to learn more about 
doing antibody testing and knowing the uh, low prevalence and uh, false positives that can be there that we may want to consider doing. If the first comes positive, we do a second test uh, for antibody uh, to see, confirm that it fits really positive. I don't know the exact answer to that question at the moment. We'll have to let experience follow up, but that's generally what I, I, I'm doing. Um, so there, there's that question. I think it's in the back of everybody's mind. I, we probably talk about it at the dinner table. I mean, it, it looks like we're flattening the curve. It looks like our hospitals can handle capacity. If, you know, we don't do all this for the flu, are we, are we doing the right thing? Or, yeah, I think, is it overkill, yeah. right? Yeah, so great question. And, and, uh, and the answer to, is it overkill, uh, depends on the mortality rate and the infectivity rate. So we know that it's very infectious, but heck, so is the cold. So everyone gets the cold. The second part is the, the mortality rate. Are we willing to tolerate the number of deaths that are going to come if this uh, infection occurs in a large population? So let's take a scenario where at present, uh, we've only had infection in a small population, which is uh, maybe three to 5% of the population. You compare this to New York City, where they have an infection in 20 to 25%, a five-fold difference, okay? So you look at the scenario and we've experienced what Memphis has gone through and it's, it's manageable. It's, you know, we dealt with it from the healthcare setting. New York City, I would say is unmanageable. Could we basically flattened out what New York City would have done? And over time, what will happen, I believe, is until we get a vaccine, we're going to see a smoldering of number of infections and especially risk high risk for those who are elderly because that's what we are finding uh, th this virus can kill that population also uh, in the young we're seeing really bizarre complications of uh, uh, inflammation with strokes happening and vasculitis type syndromes that are occurring um, and so uh, until we got a better handle on this, we didn't know that it could be killing not just one or two percent, but ten or twenty percent. And we also don't know what the long-term complications of those who have recovered from COVID pneumonia is. Uh, yes, they will get better, uh, but will there be some long-term repercussions uh, with decreased capacity uh, in their lungs? All right, we're. We're going to wrap it up. We're still getting a lot of questions, but I want to wrap it up with one final one that's that's kind of a two-parter and um, I think okay. a good way to uh, to end us tonight. Um, yeah, sure. Can you give some advice, um, especially to our our clinics, uh, in the scope of uh, one seeing live patients, some general guidance on that going forward, and then if you're a provider, particularly a surgeon. Uh, do you have a recommendation for how often that person should be tested? 
Sure. So seeing live patients um, is going to be different. Uh, one, wearing a mask. And in fact, I would say both patient and doctors wear a mask. Uh, why? Again, asymptomatic transmission occurs. Uh, patients are from the general population. Uh, and certainly if anyone is symptomatic with flu-like illness, still follow the same protocol that we've done before, which is we say, look, uh, let's get tested first rather than having to uh, come to uh, the clinic uh, if, if, uh, if that can be avoided in uh, places. Uh, so it, it's going to be an evolving uh, strategy of how we take care of patients live. Uh, and it, masking is going to be, and hand washing is going to be the, the main way that we uh, avoid transmitting the virus. Uh, everyone in the staff wearing a mask as well. Now, what about us as healthcare workers? And when we are out there managing uh, patients and the surgeon uh, who is, uh, uh, you know, involved in, in surgery, um, and seeing patients, the question is, uh, does he or she have to get tested or not? And, uh, and how often? Uh, the answer to that is unclear, but again, just as a nursing home patient, uh, nursing home uh, provider, uh, the, there has to be uh, some more uh, evidence of the baseline zero prevalence that exists in the community that will then determine and drive the, the answer to that. Several areas that will uh, help is knowing the serology. And the second is, is also uh, determine if there are outbreaks that happen, uh, they will then alert to say that we need more testing. And actually testing could become very simple. Uh, nasal self-swab once a week uh, is a strategy that's being used at St. Jude's uh, for healthcare workers and doctors. And, uh, and doing those in a pooled manner to reduce the cost could be a strategy that, uh, especially those who are working with uh, cancer patients who are immunocompromised or other patients uh, in those scenarios. So the, not all the answers are there yet, but the, the, it's very clear that there will be a new normal of how we practice medicine as we return back to reopening. Um, the science can only take us so far. It's our own experience and our willingness to learn what we have from before and apply it in the best way. The epidemiology, the science, and, and obviously uh, at, at the end, uh, providing the care to our patients uh, is going to be critical. The hand-holding, the compassion that we were used to uh, will have to take a back seat until we can figure a lot of the answers. And I know this may sound very strange to all of us who've uh, done this for all our careers and life uh, time is, you know, drawing and putting a wedge between us and our patients. Uh, but, but I think uh, 
we've gotten, uh, uh, we've made tremendous progress in the past two months, but we need more time in order to find a better uh, normal. I know that it's not perfect seeing patients in this way, but I believe we can and we will find a better norm. All right, thank you, Dr. Jane. Uh, we're at uh, 75 minutes now, so um, maybe uh, we'll schedule another call one day soon. I appreciate your time, Dr. Warren. Okay. Thank you for uh, chiming in as well. Um, I did put um, a screenshot there on the screen of our uh, website where we've posted some reopening guidance from uh, the TMA uh, for our medical uh, practices. And so feel free um, to peruse that. Um, we are also give a quick plug. Um, we are in the process of finalizing a contract with a, a group of psychologists to be able to offer our uh, physicians um, some counseling uh, through a program called Thrive. And uh, we'll email some more information once that, once that is finalized. But uh, we have two psychologists on board, and then we have another large group that uh, is going to be um, added to the mix as well. So uh, we're excited to be able to offer some confidential counseling uh, to our members um, now. So uh, with that, I'll uh, ask everybody to stay resilient and uh, stay strong out there. And uh, don't hesitate to reach out to the Medical Society if you need us. And uh, have a good night. Thank you, Dr. Jane. Thank you, Dr. Warren. Thanks. Take care. You've been listening to the Memphis MedCast, a podcast series from Memphis Medical Society. Subscribe to our podcast anywhere you enjoy listening to podcasts or mdmemphis.org.